I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Are you ready for truly hydrated skin? Meet Hyaluronic Body Serum, a breakthrough in body care from Osea. It's clinically proven to instantly increase hydration by 161%. Their lightweight, fast-absorbing serum delivers 24 hours of nonstop hydration for silky, smooth skin without the sticky afterfeel. Osea's latest innovation combines the magic of their best-selling Hyaluronic Sea Serum with a new formula that's good for the whole body and five types of hyaluronic acid to target every layer of the skin. Osea is a women-founded, women-led brand that's been crafting seaweed-powered products for nearly 30 years. The best part? Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code SUMMER at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code SUMMER. Hi, I'm Danny Higginbotham. I used to play football. I used to play football and, and wear Adidas stand finder boots. Now you can find me in a gantry. The, the thing that struck me when I first met you, I think, is that one of the first things I would think, looking at your footballing CV, is former Manchester United player, because you came through the academy there, you played in the Premier League, you played in the Champions League, you played in the World Club Championship, you went out to, to, to Rio in 99-2000, uh, and yet, you almost seem to, you still have a great relationship with Manchester United, you're on M- MUTV, etc. But you kind of back away from that tag of former Manchester United player. Why is that? It's a question I've been asked a few times, actually, because, you know, I made probably eight appearances for United, something like that in total for the first team. And I think for you to have the tag of, say, former Man United player, you know, I, I think it, would have to be something more substantial than that. You know, don't get me wrong, if, if someone said, you know, where'd you grow up? Yeah, I grew up at United, but I wasn't um, a household name there. I didn't make multiple appearances. 
And there were other parts in my career where obviously I played a lot more games for, for other teams. Don't get me wrong, it was, it was brilliant from my perspective to grow up at a club like United because at that particular time, that era, you know, the generation that, that, that went before myself, um, I learned so much from them, the, the senior players that were there. And I think more importantly, my family are all Reds as well. So mm. it was it, it was brilliant to be there from the age of you know nine till till twenty one. How did your family react when you signed for Manchester United? Was it like bunting in the streets and all that sort of stuff? No, not really, because I was actually at City first when right. I was about eight or nine, and um, ironically, it was Brian Kidd that took me to United. <laughs> Because he's now at Manchester City. Obviously, he played for Manchester City. Had scored scored a goal in the in the what was the European Cup final for United against Benfica in I think 1968. And he took my dad into an office. I was playing in an interleague game, so obviously he had the best players from <clears throat> the, the the league all came together and played against another league. And and it was at Littleton Road, which is one of United's old training grounds. And he pulled my dad into his office and he said, um, said, you know, what colour is your house? And my dad said, well, it's red. It's always been red. And he just said, in 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 in, in other words, he said, uh, what are you doing with that blue lot then? And then that was it. And I and I went to United. And I was so fortunate from a young age. You know, I had Nobby Styles as one of my coaches. Obviously, Brian Kidd, uh, Tony Whelan, the the great. Eric Harrison, may he rest in peace. Um, and I learned so much from from those individuals as in terms of, not just as a player, but how to carry myself. Um, you seem to have taken that forward, don't you? That Id- idea of the right way of doing things. It's, you talk about that a lot, don't you? It's, it's huge um, because I, I often get asked my... Mm, my younger years at United growing up, you know, to, to when I left at 21, what did I learn from there? You must have learned this about football and that about football. It was more from my perspective, how to be a man, um, how to be around other people, uh, as in terms of just common courtesy and, and, and everything like that, how to, how to be as a human being. And those were some of the, the greatest things that I learned from from the club, obviously under Sir Alex Ferguson and all the coaches that I've just mentioned, and I mean, what you were saying about S- Sir Alex, mm. it, there is this thing. I mean, when you look at your autobiography, it's something that you keep coming back to about his way of doing things and about his um, expectations of people on a on a human level yeah. as much as on a football level. I mean, you know, you hear these great stories about you know Cristiano Ronaldo when he was there making the tea lady tea mm. and all this sort of stuff. How important has it been for every one of those players? Because you were surrounded by loads of those players that we know, like Beckham, like mm. Butt, like the Nevilles. It, it's huge because I think what, what he instilled was that, don't get me wrong, you know, there were world-class players <laughs> near enough from 1 to 11 at the time and, and, and the substitutes as well. But I think they realised and understood, and it was, it was put into us as well from a young age, that individuals will not create success. You know, it has to be it has to be a team ethic, and that was one of the biggest things. And what I loved about Charles Ferguson was the way he he treated everybody from a young age as well. I had obviously problems when I was in Belgium, accused of doing a few things that I didn't do, and towards a referee. You'll and, come back to that. Yeah, and they they won the treble, and he took time out to fly back over to Belgium with us to be our character witnesses um, when he didn't have to. And what was it now? Probably about nine months ago, 
Um, I've been working at Sky and I was getting the train home and as I got into the carriage where I was in, I saw him and I hadn't seen him for a long time and first thing he did was, you know, ask how my mum and dad were and what have you. And he was sat down, he had a seat to one side of him, then he had another t two seats facing him and they were empty. <clears throat> and they were empty, so I had a quick chat with him and said, um, you know, I wish you all the best and likewise and what have you. And then as I walked past him, he went, come and sit down with me. And I had two and a half hours with him on the train just talking. Wow. And it was incredible for me because it was, it was, in my opinion, the greatest manager um, who, no, who, who is no longer a manager and then me. And we just sat there, <clears throat> excuse me, we just sat there and we just talked about everything. There was bits and bobs about football. Um, and then when I left, he just said to me, he said, always dress smart. And that's something that he always said to you as, <laughs> as a younger player as well. And it, it was obviously the football side of things as you were growing up, but there was so many different levels as well about you as an individual, as a person, as a human being. And, and those were the biggest things that I took from, from the club growing up there, how to carry yourself. And it set me in good stead. There's no doubt about it as, as my career went on because managers that signed me then, you know, they, they'd sit me down after I'd signed and they'd say, you know, I spoke to a few people about you, but you know what, I was always okay with you because you grew up at United. Yeah. And it always gave you a head start. Not like a watermark yeah. in a way. It, it wasn't turning around and saying, you grew up at United, so we know you're a good player. Mm. It was more a case of you grew up at United, so you know we know you're a good individual. Like a value system. <clears throat> 100%, and that was important. But despite the fact you had what in many ways people would see as, as, as the best possible start in your way into the, the playing football world, um, you did have it tough at the beginning. I mean, there were two big occasions on which your career nearly ended mm. before it started. Once where you broke your leg, and then Belgium. Yeah, um, the one where I broke my leg was a, was a bizarre one. Um, I was playing for the B team at the time. I think it was a first year apprentice, and it, my first year wasn't great mm. at all. Um, didn't didn't go according to plan, and this was this was March of the first year. And I went into I went into a tackle. It, it was innocuous, really. And basically, what happened? Um, the opposition player had gone, gone to kick the ball away, but I'd got there before him, mm. and he kicked me really hard on my knee. But because of that age, you've still got a growth plate, which is you know, a very, very strong part of your, of your body where you're still growing from. I had a growth plate just above my knee, and that protected my knee, but it, 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 sent, it sent like obviously a big shock through my femur, and um, I got a horseshoe crack in my femur, and the, the likes never really been seen in football. I saw Dave Fever recently at Eric Harrison's funeral and he said to me, he said, in all my years of being a, a football physio, he said, I've never never seen it, never seen anything like that. So I've, I was out for six months then, uh, six or seven months. And fortunately, when I came back, I actually came back, I think mentally stronger and physically stronger and had, and had, a, had, a, had a great next few months, which, you know, sorted my future, my immediate future out at United. But the situation in Belgium was probably one that that stands out as in terms of, with Sir Alex Ferguson, what he what he did for me, and and Ronnie Wallwork at the time, you know, we went out to Antwerp, had a great time, a fantastic experience. You were loaned out. There. Yeah, I was loaned out there. I was the first. United had a partnership. Yeah, they had a partnership oh, with Royal Antwerp, and I was the first player to to go out there from the club, and I was on my own from, I think August to maybe January time, December January time, and it was a real learning curve, a, a, a real growth for me because I moved to a country where. They speak, well, that, that part of Belgium spoke Flemish, which mm. is a mix of, I think, French, Dutch and German. And it was very difficult to, to understand. Um, 
the group of players, I think there was 18 or 19 different nationalities. And at the time you had um, a lot of Yugoslav, the former Yugoslav um, players there. Yeah. And it was during the, the, the war that they were having at mm. the time and they couldn't speak to family. They didn't know whether they had lost family members. And, and that brought everybody together. So from a, from a human level, from a growing experience was unbelievable for me. And then towards the end of the season, we got into the playoffs and we played in a game where we had to play behind closed doors because there'd been trouble in the game before from the supporters. Right. And it was nil-nil and about five minutes into injury time, the opposition scored a goal. Um, it was probably about five or six yards offside. <laughs> VAR would have come in wonderfully well then. Um, 20 years too Yeah. <laughs> and the referee gave it. And, and afterwards, um, we're walking back into the, into the tunnel and I was really frustrated, really angry, and used to have the old advertising hoardings that used to go round and round, and I put my foot through one of them, uh, just out of sheer anger, and um, my foot got stuck. Ended up, ended up being a blessing in disguise. My foot got stuck, and anybody, if they were filming it, would see me. My foot stuck, and I'm trying to get it out. I've cut all my socks to bits. My boots got stuck in, and then I managed, after about four or five minutes, I managed to get my sock out, managed to get my boot out, and then as I've walked into the tunnel, I'm still like really frustrated, really annoyed. I've taken my shirt off and just thrown it on the floor and I've walked in and I've just walked into an unbelievable scene. There's just people fighting left, right and centre. Um, this is in the tunnel? This is in the tunnel, yeah. Officials from both, from both sets of teams fighting. And we played a team called La Louvier, which is basically the French side of, of Belgium. And they right. didn't get on with, with, with us as a team and they were really at loggerheads. And there was a cameraman in there and he was taking photos of all our team that were supposedly doing things that they shouldn't have been doing, fighting, but, but taking no photos of the opposition team. And one of my friends that was with us, he saw this and basically he, he, he went for the cameraman, grabbed the, grabbed the camera off him and, and ripped the stuff out. And the cameraman had a knife. He got the knife out and fortunately, yeah, fortunately my friend caught him square in the uh, in the jaw and uh, the rest was history and from that point of view but then as you walk further down the tunnel it was just fighting everywhere and as we then walking into to our dressing room the referee at the time has got our goalkeeping coach by the scruff of the neck right and ronnie who I was with he's pushed our goalkeeping coach out of the way and he's got hold of the referee hasn't hit him or anything i've managed to get ronnie off him put him in the dressing room and, you know, we're sitting in afterwards and I've gone, Ronnie said, you know, you can get in big trouble for this. The referees then, everything's dispersed, everything's quieting down. We then got back to the hotel and immediately myself and, and Ronnie's um, playing registration had been, you know, upheld as in terms of we well, weren't avoided. allowed. Voided, yeah, we weren't allowed to play football anymore. We were told we had to go back to England. We then went back to England and then we came over to, to Belgium. Uh, the equivalent, basically, of the of the English FA is, is in Brussels called the Glass House of the, the Belgium FA. And we had an interpreter, uh, the referee and the two linesmen were there. And, you know, he gave his version of events, which was, I think, Ronnie headbutted him. I then picked him up off the floor and punched him twice wow. and strangled him. The problem we had at the time was that he was FIFA listed. Right. Um, so he was an unborn referee in Belgium and everybody believed what, he, what he'd said because there was no reason to say anything else. There was no reason to lie. Um, so we went home. I think Ronnie had got life everywhere, basically couldn't play anymore. And I think I was given, I think one year, one year in England and two years in Belgium. 
Now at 18, 19, a year is a long time. It's, it's like the end of the world. Yeah, it, it is. It's the end of the world. And it's such a, it's such an important time of your development as well. And for me not to be able to play for a year would probably have been the end of my career. Mm. Um, so we went and challenged it. Sir Alex Ferguson came over with us and, and stood up and spoke about us. Um, and he'd known us both since the age of nine, knew our families mm. and knew that that's not something that we would do or was very out of character. He asked us both, did we do it? And we said, no said we didn't do anything like that whatsoever and he, he backed us up but at the time it was it was upheld and we had these two bands over us uh, so all we could do was train and when we got back obviously we were both we were both devastated and Sir Alex Ferguson um, pulled us both into his office he said listen he said we're going to back you all the way we know that you haven't done anything and we want to give you four-year contracts wow which just put us at ease a little bit. Yeah, sure. And he said, just go into the canteen, have a coffee, because you didn't have agents or anything. We, there wasn't a need to have an agent. It was what it was then. Mm. So me and Ronnie went, went into the canteen and you know, I said to him, said, do you want to sign it? And he said, well, if you sign it, I'll sign it. And within two minutes, we'd signed the new contract. And the referee then officiated a game, first game of the season, I think it was six all. Yeah, he was asked then live on air. But, goals in that <laughs> there, there was a number of bizarre decisions. He was then asked to think live on, on Belgian television his reasons for the, the bizarre decisions he's made. He, he blamed me and Ronnie, um, said that he was still having nightmares about us and it was really affecting him. They gave him the benefit of the doubt. Then about two weeks later, he refereed a game which was 1-0 and he gave the most bizarre goal. And he was then told to get psychiatric help, which I think he had to go and do and our bands were immediately quashed. And, and that was it. But it was it was a real frustrating time. And like people says, oh, you know, you must have had a lot of anger. My dad, my dad's a very different person than me. I think that if he could have found the referee, <laughs> I don't think it would have been pleasant what would have happened afterwards. Um, I would love to sit down with him now and just ask him why, no anger or anything. I'd just like to ask him, you know, why, why did you do it? Because there has to be a reason. Yeah. You know, he wasn't, he wasn't, I don't necessarily think he was trying to do it to gain fame because he was the number one referee in Belgium at the time. Sure. But I would just love just to sit down with him and just have a coffee and just understand his reasoning behind what he did. There's no, there's no bitterness from my perspective. You move on from it, but it would, nice just be, it, it would be nice just to sit down with him, have a coffee and just say, you know, why did you do it? Yeah, great biscuits with a coffee in Belgium as well. Oh, exactly. Which, yeah. uh, which yes. takes it up a level, oh, I, I, yeah, I, I, I think. Yeah. Of course, people assume it's more mugs of builders tea at Stoke. We, we associate you with Stoke and mm. being part of that team that established itself in the, 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 the Premier League. I mean, it's, it's interesting because you, you talked about like the, the, how good it was. We, we, we've talked various times about how good it was for yeah. you to work with Roy Keane. You made your debut wearing a, for Manchester United wearing a pair of Roy Keane's boots. Yeah. But for most of the year that you were at Sunderland, you were looking to go back to Stoke and you did go back there eventually. Yeah, I think, obviously, I was at, I was at Stoke for a year in, in the Championship and, you know, Roy, Roy had taken over Sunderland at the bottom of the Championship. And well, people forget that bit of his managerial career. It's an incredible story, isn't not, it? I don't believe that he's given the credit that that he is deserved of what he did at Sunderland. You know, you, you look at you know, you look at where they find themselves now. He took a team that was bottom of the championship, got them promoted and stabilised them in the Premier League. That in itself is no mean feat. And he did an unbelievable job. And when 
when he came calling in the summer, you know, he was one of my he was one of my idols as a as a kid. Yeah. Um, growing up, his his desire, his, his drive, his commitment was just there for everybody to admire. You know, he was an unbelievable footballer. In my opinion, one of the one of the best central midfielders that the world's ever seen. And he he wanted to sign me, and I wanted to go to Sunderland because it was a big club. But there's no doubt about it. Working under him was was a huge, a huge um, attraction for me as well. And then I went there and, and you could see why he had been such an unbelievable player. Don't get me wrong, he had uh, an amazing amount of natural ability. Mm. But the drive that he showed as a player, he then brought it into management in a good way. And you come away from a situation. I should have done better than what I did at Sunderland. There's nobody else to blame but myself. You know, I had a season there and I should have done better. Uh, but but I didn't, and like I say, I take full responsibility for that. But to work under him and to see what drives him, to see his desire, in my opinion, can only could only have been been a good thing. You know, he, he left no stone unturned. He watched players, not just on the training ground, but he watched their mannerisms, um, and and took and, and took a keen interest in making sure that he thought a player was right to play on the Saturday. And it didn't matter how well you'd performed the previous Saturday. If you weren't performing that week in training, if you'd taken your foot off the gas, you wouldn't play. And I think from a player's perspective, that's all you can ever ask for. Everybody was treated the same. Um, people may say at times, you know, that, that he could go over the top of his management style and, and what have you, but I learned so much from him. And like I say, the drive that he possesses, and you can see he wants to go back into management now. And I just think that what happens is, is that people, people will always look more on the negative side of things than the positive right. side of things. I think that happens with, with, with the population, so to speak. You know, we don't, we don't pinpoint the success that they have. We don't pinpoint the good things that individuals do. Instead, we, we tend to, to look at, at what they might not be so good at. And yeah. I think that's something that can follow people around. And I think it's unfair. So. What interests me is we can see the line from Manchester United to to Sunderland, can't we? Because mm. there's the Roy Keane connection. Yeah. But some people might say, from that upbringing at United, and not just the way of doing things, but what United are perceived as as a footballing entity, mm. to go from that and being formed in that environment to becoming like really the standard bearer for the Stoke team yeah. that established itself in the Premier League. How, how does that work, do you think? Um, I think you've got to give great credit to, to Tony Pulis, what he did at the time. You know, I, um, <clears throat> I was his first signing and his second stint back at the club. A lot of people didn't want him back at the club. Peter mm. Coates had, had, um, had just taken control back off the club, off the, off the Icelandic owners. And when he signed me, he said, I need to change things around here. He said, there's, there's too many senior players that have probably been running the dressing room and I want some of the younger players to be able to express themselves. And he started to do that. You know, he brought in the likes of Liam Lawrence came in, Roy Delap, Ricardo mm. Fuller, Lee Hendry. At the end of the season, we had Patrick Berger on the bench, <laughs> which was unbelievable. Jonathan Fortune came in, Andy Griffin, and he brought all the characters that he wanted. It, that, that was a huge thing for Tony. It was... I want them to be good players, but I need the dressing room to be good. If you've got a good dressing room, that's three quarters of the battle as far as I'm concerned. So people associating with a certain style, but you would associate them with a certain 
character. group of personalities yes. and character. 100%. I think that was the biggest thing. Um, the biggest thing for, for Tony was, was the characters that were coming into the dressing room. You know, there, there was at times you would be doing shape near enough every day. Mm. Um, a lot, lot of work without the ball. Yeah, a lot of work without the ball, but there could be no argument because we, we were winning week in, week out. Yeah. And he just instilled this unbelievable atmosphere within the dressing room. Now, you know, towards the end of my career, you would see certain situations where you'd get in, you'd train, you'd have your lunch, that'd be it, you'd go. Everybody just go their separate ways. When, when we were at Stoke, a lot of the time for, for a number of years, you know, we'd get in for training and then we'd have lunch and we'd, we'd be hanging around until three o'clock because it was such a togetherness. And I don't think that can ever be underestimated in no matter what dressing room that you're in. You know, you can have, the, you can have some of the biggest clubs in the world, but you have to have a dressing room that's, that believes in each other, that's united. And then you want to help each other out on the pitch. Throughout my time growing up before I went to Stoke, you know, you'd, you'd hear stories about people finding their home at this club and that mm. club. And I, just, I honestly thought it was a load of rubbish. Right. I, I, I just thought it was nonsense. But the amount of people that used to hear saying, you know, it just felt right, there was a real understanding and I feel as though this club just got the best out of me. And that's what happened when I went to Stoke. I just felt that, you know, the, the, the supporters, the area, the management, the players, the staff, everybody was united. And the atmosphere as well. That's oh. something that's underrated about the Britannia, isn't it? The atmosphere was absolutely incredible. You know, when I first went to Stoke, we were playing in front of about 10,000. And i never forget, we were playing against Preston at home. And fans had, um, had started, I think it was a petition for a, a, a red card a red card show to Tony Pusey. They didn't want him anymore at the club. And it was when we were playing Preston at home. Whether Tony had got wind of this, I don't know. But he pulled off a masterstroke on the day of the game. Because obviously, you know, this red card thing was going to take place when the game had started. And we signed Lee Hendry in the morning. Okay. He couldn't play, but it was an exciting signing. You know, Lee was an outstanding player, had a great time at Stoke. And he came on before the game and everything quietened down. And then we just went from strength to strength. And when he'd got the plays that he wanted at the club, our first game was away at Leeds United. Obviously, you know, Leeds, huge football club. We used to love going and play there. We went there and we won 4 0. And we went on an incredible run. Um, but we just fell short at the end from getting into the playoffs. And then I moved to Sunderland. Um, the lads then got promoted. But then coming back, and playing in the Premier League with Stoke, particularly them first two seasons, I never forget it. Both teams used to go out and warm up, come back in, and then when you're in the tunnel waiting to go out, you would physically look across at the opposition and you'd be walking out and you would see the colour draining from their faces <laughs> when you walked out onto the pitch. Particularly be Arsenal. Oh, no comment. No, yeah, it, it, it wasn't, you know, we... We used to love that tag. You know, people thought that when Arsene Wenger came out, and listen, he, he, he's one of the best managers that the Premier League has ever seen, but when he likened us to a rugby team, people thought that, you know, that, that was going to bother us. We loved it. We loved it because it was obvious that, you know, it, it, it had affected. You'd yeah, you, you'd rattled them. And every week we would feed off the negativity from people that said we we don't play football the right way we shouldn't be in the Premier League that that fed us week in week out we turned that negativity and what we did we created a um, an atmosphere which was 
to a certain extent us against everybody else that didn't want us in the Premier League that didn't believe we played the right way that didn't believe we should be able to have a long a long throw in that that caused havoc now at the time United um, Chelsea United and Chelsea were, were the two at the time that they came they had quality in abundance and what we used to do particularly when we played at home we would outfight the opposition and then in the last 15 20 minutes usually go on and win the game united chelsea in particular they would stand up to the fight they'd go okay you want to fight us we'll fight you and they did and they outfought us and then they beat us because their quality came through and we held our hands up and you never heard anything from, from the likes of sir alex ferguson the various chelsea managers at the time really saying anything and i remember sir alex ferguson they beat us i think it was i think it was the 0809 season they beat us at home I think in the last minute, they got a last minute winner. And it was when um, he said at the end of that season that it was the most important victory for them to go on and win the Premier League. Because then I think a few weeks afterwards, we played Liverpool at home and it was after Sir Alex Ferguson got under Rafa Benitez's skin and he brought all the oh. all the statistics out. And it probably sidetracked him from, from playing against us. And we ended up drawing 0-0 with them at home. Um, but we knew what we were and that that's the biggest thing. And, and that's what I for myself personally as well is that I know what my limitations were as a player. Mm. I know that there was a lot of things that I couldn't do, there was things that I could do. And I think that was the biggest thing we knew as a, as a group at Stoke as well. We knew what, what our strengths were. If we ever went out and tried to outplay Arsenal or anything like that, they would, they would have destroyed us every single game. So we played to our strengths regardless of what people thought about it. It was successful for us. And it coincided and it went hand in hand with the area as well. Because I think that what you have to do when you go into a club as a manager, as a player, assess your area. That's what Diego Simeone has said again and again about Atletico. And that's what was so big then moving away from the, the Calderon, that idea of, you know, we are, we are defending our land. Yes, and that's it, know your identity. Mm. And if your identity is making a 30-yard sprint and a crunching tackle that's going to get the fans off their feet, then that's what it is. Then that's the type of play you bring into the club. And, you know, Stoke, as they went on, don't get me wrong, they had some fantastic success under Mark Hughes, the ninth place finishes. But then as time went on, I think they, they forgot their identity and, well, you just look at where they are now, which is a real shame. And it's, it's a completely different atmosphere at the club. And I hope they can get back to, to what it was because it, it was an absolute privilege to, to play in, in front of that support you know, every other week at, at home and I, I loved it. For for two years you'd think you'd get used to it, but your hairs would still stand on end walking out and it was it, it was incredible and it was it was the best time of my career, there's no doubt about it, where I was enjoying my football probably more than more than any other time and it was it, it was just a privilege to be part of. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. 
That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. The other thing that's always struck me about you, Danny, is you've never given me the impression that you've missed being a footballer since you quit. Mm. It felt like it ended and you were totally at peace with that. I think that's quite uncommon amongst footballers because you know you see a lot of them when they're talking about the glory days and their eyes sort of glaze over. And I understand that, I totally understand that. But for, for you, why was that? Do you think that's because you're a quite realistic person? Do you think that's because you're happy with your career? Do you think it's because you'd already started doing punditry and co-coms work so you could see a way forward into the future that perhaps some footballers they can't see that there is a future once they've finished I think it's a bit of everything uh, the one thing I would say about my career is that you know people people will often say that X Y and Z overachieved and and some people take that as like a little bit of a kick in the teeth or a negativity mm. people say to me that I overachieved I'm delighted about that because the one thing I always said um, whilst I was playing was that I don't ever want anybody to turn around to me at the end of my career and go, you should have done more. I know I couldn't have done more. Mm. I know that I probably did overachievers in terms of, of, of being a player. Um, and I'd had enough. What you have to understand is that, don't get me wrong, you know, you've got these players that have had sensational careers, won trophy after trophy, league after league, whatever it may be. I didn't have a situation like that. I loved playing the game. It was brilliant. Um, you know, I had... I had... Releg a lot of relegation fights in the Premier League mm. and at the end of the season you were you were drained and I got injured um, probably when I was 31, 32 and I did my cruise ship but what I realised then was that the next five and a half months me getting back to full fitness it was I was, I was having a fight against myself because nobody nobody ever denied the fact to me that I would that, that I'd be able to come back. Mm. But I was having a fight myself that I could come back the same player. And I think what happened in, in those five and a half, six months that I was out injured, I used everything that I had left to prove to myself that I could, that I could get back. Um, and I came back and football had moved on by then. Um, I remember playing against QPR. Um, I think we'd been beating 5-0 at Bolton away. And the manager said to me, he said, are you ready? I was nowhere near ready, but I said, yeah, because I wanted to play. Yeah. And I was an embarrassment. We played against QPR at home. I think we got beat 2-1 and I was I was awful. And I knew then that the time had come that I was going to have to move on. And I went to a few different clubs. And the one thing I always said is that I wasn't going to retire until I knew what I was going to do next. And I promised a lot of friends that I would always finish my career at Altrin, which was my local club. Which you did? Yeah, which I did. Um, I only played two games. I played my first game. We won the second game. I think we lost 5-4. And after about 55, 60 minutes, it was a 50-50 challenge. And I didn't go into it because I didn't want to get hurt. Oh, wow. And I knew that minute my career was over mm. because I hadn't made a career out of taking four plays on and putting the ball into the back of the net or yeah. being elegant. I'd made a career of probably putting my head into places that some people wouldn't put the feet as in terms of being on the football pitch. And when that was gone, I knew that that was probably 80% of me as, a, as an individual player that was, that was gone. 
Well, that's it, because like when you talk about the earlier bits of your career, you talk about like when you were a pro mm. already, playing football at like sort of pickup games in the car park of the pub where your dad went, oh, and like be, be, being being worried that he was going to catch. And like, like, do you look back at that now and like think about how mad that sounds? It, yeah, it does sound mad, but I just love football. I remember playing in the Premier League for Derby. And we'd, I'd play week in, week out. And then on Sunday, I'd go and play on the mates, uh, with my mates in the local park. <laughs> and people were just like, what are you doing? And my dad caught me. My dad caught me and I was at United at the time and we had a blazer. And I went and knocked on the door of the house. He opened the door, gave him a blazer and threw it in my face. You know, get the FNL out of here and do not come back. And I walked around, because we lived on a council estate, I walked around the block probably eight or nine times. Came back and didn't lay a finger on me. He just ripped into me and gave me a nosebleed without even touching me. Just because of how angry he'd got with me mm. and how like, oh my God, what am I doing here? But I continued to play football on the car park with my friends, but I just got someone who was better <laughs> to keep an eye out when my dad was coming out of the pub <laughs> to tell me. That's the um, key. Yeah, but no, that, that was the way that was. And I love football and I never... I never looked at it and thought to myself, I'm a Premier League player, so I can't play with my mates. I always, I always played with my mates every single Sunday after a game on a Saturday. I didn't care. That was the way that, was the way that it was. I enjoy playing with my mates now on a Monday and a Thursday. But now instead of getting paid and on numerous occasions getting beat, I now have to pay to get beat <laughs> when we have to have the floodlights on. We've all been there. Yeah, so... I so no, I, can identify yeah, so I, I look back at my career and I've probably spent 25 minutes doing it the day I finished my career and obviously had to had to look back uh, to go through my book but I've always been a person that if you look back you never look forward yeah. and I don't want to be judged now on on being a foot, former footballer I don't like the ex-footballer tag I don't even like the former footballer tag I just like you know what I'm doing now and that's it and that that's that's what's most important to me now well yeah it is fair to say that you've approached your media career in exactly the same way that you've approached your football career I mean, I know from watching you work a lot and from working with you and from speaking to other people who know your work and watching other former footballers who do equivalent things, the amount that you put into it is is quite extraordinary. Like you're never going to be accused of under-preparing, no. is, 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 is fair to say. Do you get quite the same buzz off it as you... Yeah. Did of playing football? Yeah. Don't get me wrong. I think I think what we have to do when you, when you when you when you see your football career, you know. Don't get me wrong. At the ultimate playing football, there's very little that can compare to that. Yeah. But that wasn't for the what the 15 years as a, as a professional footballer. You know, that was for a certain amount of time, and nothing will will eclipse that. But the biggest thing when I was playing football, the 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 best moment, which you, which would be great just to bottle up, is. After the game's finished, you sat in the dressing room. Manager said his bit. You can't feel your body. Mm. Um, you've taken your body somewhere it shouldn't go, which I used to love doing that. You've won the game and you've had a good performance and you just sat there una unable to like even feel your own body. But just for them, two minutes after the game, that was just an amazing feeling. What's the equivalent moment now? The equivalent moment now is probably, you know, I love doing the co-coms when you when you're looking at something and you're seeing something unfold and you're able to call it before it happens, yeah. your reaction to a goal. Um, but it's, it, it would be that really. I think getting 
getting some unbelievable little insight from managers, speaking to managers that you can then bring to the audience that are watching at home or listening at home. That's it, that's something you do, isn't it? And when I talked about that intense preparation, mm. you, you talk to people who know teams to find out more about those those teams, and especially with your work on the EFL in Scarlet, yeah. you, you go and watch training, you speak to the managers, and for some people who get the impression that co-coms and pundits just, you know, maybe have a cursory look at research yeah. notes. For you, nothing could be further from the truth. How important is it to get a sense of how these clubs clubs live and work on a daily basis? Huge. If I go into a game on the Saturday and I haven't got that, I feel so underprepared. Mm. I think it's so important. So I, I have a routine now with it. You know, Thursday is, I'm always doing, you know, uh, a show on Sky on a Thursday, then I come home. Friday in the morning is speaking to a local journalist from whatever club it may be. Yes. Because I haven't had it yet, but it wouldn't surprise you if a manager, you ring a manager up for the first time and he quizzes you on his team. Mm. And I think that's fair because if I'm a manager, I want to know that whoever's covering my game is, is clued up. Right. So we'll always speak to a local journalist on a, on a Thursday morning and then, sorry, Friday morning and then Friday afternoon, speak to a manager. Now, more often than not, I'll be on the phone to a manager for, for half an hour um, or more. And you build the relationships up where it's trust. It's a huge thing. And you never... You well, know, you, get, you get what you give, don't you? Because in, in your sense, I, I know you've been like, quite surprised by the degree of openness yeah. you get from some of those, those coaches and managers. Yeah, you, you have to build that. I think, I hope that managers look at me and look at me what I was as a footballer, what you saw is what you get. I like to think I was an honest professional. In terms of fairness. Yeah, in terms of fairness like that. So, you know, they're, they're going to be fine fine with me. And I think there's a lot of negativity in the world, um, whether that be football, whether that be anything. I think it's important that we try and put positive spin on things. Don't get me wrong, if, you, if you're covering a game and you're doing the co-coms, if something negative happens, you, you have to look at it. But mm. let's not, if something positive happened, let's not, Let's not, you know, create negativity around it. Let's let's look at it for what it is. And the managers are great. Um, you have to know about the players as well, uh, individual players, insight on the players. Well, I, I think people demand more yeah, of like, like of like ex pros now, don't they? I, I think we've gone past the point where people think, oh, he used to play football. He knows what he's talking about because, like fans, I think have a far greater knowledge of teams and players from everywhere now. I think. The fact is they demand more. And if they get the impression that you're busking it, they pick up pretty quickly, don't they? I remember doing a game, probably about 2014, and it was for BT. And I guarantee you, it will have been after I spoke to yourself. There was a, there was a team, and you'll be able to recollect this for me. Um, they got promoted two leagues after a referee was found to have done something unjust. They went from... Yes. And I did their first game of the season. Yeah. And at the time, they had an artificial pitch. Yes. I did the game, um, and they were playing Benfica. Mm. It was the first game of the season, and it had come from nowhere. So I only had probably two or three days to do the prep. I spoke to yourself. Obviously, you know, you, we've got a really good relationship. You helped me no-enders in terms of insight with, with certain teams. And at the end of the game, and this is when you realise that the prep that you do becomes so important, 
I had a Boa Vista person get in touch with me because I was asked the question because it was chucking it down. And um, I was asked a question by the commentator saying, you know, what are all these black bits that are coming up from the AstroTurf? And I said, well, obviously when there's a lot of rain coming down, you know, it stops it from forming huge puddles because the rubber will, will, soak, up the, will, will soak up some of the water. And I had a Boa Vista supporter get in touch with me on Twitter and say, enjoyed your commentary, but what you did get wrong was that it wasn't rubber pieces because Boa Vista, as you should know, are an organic team. So therefore, it's certain other substances that would have been used on the pitch. But that is what you have to understand, that you are going to have supporters of the team that you are doing watching the game. So whether it's a League Two game, whether it's a Champions League game, whether it's a World Cup game, it doesn't matter. I treat them all with the same respect because if it's a supporter that, that supports a League Two team or a Champions League supporter supporting of a team, they still love that club. So what can I give them? What can I give the supporter that knows everything there is to know about this club? What can I tell them that they don't know? And that's the big thing for me because yes, you're there for the tactical side of things, but I think you're also there to give insight on the club, the training methods, the individual players, the managers thinking. And, and I think that's where huge. Looking for extra access comes in. One hundred percent. And I think what you find is, and I think I'm starting to see it now from managers over the last couple of years, is that they're embracing the the co-commentators and the commentators because they understand that we're on their side. And if there's something that I'll speak to a manager, just say, you know, if you want me to get something across, I'll get it across, no problem at all. Some will say yes, some will say no, and, and I'm, I'm happy either way because you look after each other. If you give me great insight, I can help you out as well. And I think it's understood now that instead of being enemies, you're not, you're there actually to help them. And, it, and it's nice because then after certain games, you'll get a text or a phone call from a manager just saying, thank you, and I thought you were very fair about this. And that means a lot to me because... It's difficult enough to be a manager. I think it's more difficult than it's ever been now because of the players that are coming through. You know, you used to have dressing rooms that would manage themselves. You'd have on-field managers. I think they're becoming more rare now. So therefore, a manager's job is probably more important than ever. And I think it's key that if you can help out, give positivity, then you, then you do it. Danny, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so no much. This was a Radio Stakhanov production. 